And we're live. Welcome back to another episode, people. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blaze podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. Patrick Abbott, introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers. Hi, my name is Patrick Abbott. I live in Washington, D.C., and right now I'm a professional coach, but on the side, I enjoy writing, and I just recently finished my first novel, Fallen. So you say professional coach, like uh, Washington Redskins or, you know, NFL. Well, I guess that is NFL, baseball. What, what are you coaching? So if I was coaching sports, I would be uh, having plenty of time to and money to write on the side. But really what I am, I'm a professional coach in the sense of I am hired by groups of people or organizations to go into organizations and just help coach both their managers, their leaders, and their line personnel, not only on mission-centric ideas, but also on personal topics, hopefully developing people, getting them where they want to be, and helping them make their own plans for the future. Okay. That all sounds highbrow and academic, so I'm going to smile and nod here. The next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we found them. So this one's very easy. He found us and said, hey, I'd like to talk about my book. Uh, and so the rest, as they say, is history. But before we get started, sir, we have to ask you the religion question. So <clears throat> you ready for this? I am. All right. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? So I'm an old school Trekkie. I grew up both on the original series, TNG, and also Deep Space Nine. So Firefly will always have a special place in my heart, but Star Trek. Acceptable answer. I mean, you know, I, I liked all of them for various reasons. So uh, the next, because we are polytheistic, Game of Thrones, The Wheel of Time, or The Sword of Shannara? So I actually like The Sword of Shannara. Uh, above all the rest. Game of Thrones has its great world-developing uh, plot. However, it's unfinished. And not knocking it, but I like a finished story. So, Shinarnia. Okay. <clears throat> so, we like both the fantastical and the scientific. But what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Sci-fi, definitely sci-fi. Uh, my dad had a telescope. I grew up with science and space as a little kid. And then just spending some summer evenings with him watching old reruns of TNG or TOS, just great childhood memories. So sci-fi will always be the first love in my heart. Okay. <clears throat> so do you remember the specific um, first sci-fi memory you have? Was it watching it with your dad? Did you find it before that? What, what was the first sort of franchise that caught your attention? So the first franchise would be Star Trek, but even before that, my dad would tell little stories that he would make up on the spot when we were very little kids falling asleep. So I really remember the little stories he would say, and they were five, 10 minute stories, but they always involve space travel or uh, adventures in space, or what if people from space came to earth? And so those really stuck with me as a little kid. Okay. So what is it about uh, speculative fiction that you love? So the wider umbrella genre. Oh, it, it, that's an incredibly fun genre. And you can do anything with it. 
You can go hard and actually explore real science with it. You can have softer elements of science, but explore social cultural issues. You can just play what if, especially in alternative histories, which combines my love of history with fiction. You could, it's a playground and your imagination is the limit. And the best thing about that, it's becomes other people's imaginations are the limit and they can imagine things you could never even think about. And it's, it really creates an atmosphere where you go, huh, let's actually think about that. Let's explore that. What would that mean? And you can apply to almost any level of should we reconsider some hot political issues? Should we just enjoy the story or should we find something we love and just tweak it a little bit? It's really fun. Okay. So how did your love of the genre transition into you writing stories in this space? So I've always kind of on the side would make up little stories, maybe jot it down on a piece of paper and just forget it. Then COVID happened. And for most things, COVID ruined everything. COVID actually in one element came in handy because with work, the, my organization decided, hey, we're going to do shift work. Some people are going to come in in the morning. Some people are going to come in in the afternoon. And they decided, Patrick, we really want you in the afternoon. I'm a morning person. And I joke that I have my dad's Catholic guilt and my mom's Protestant work ethic. So I need to be doing something. So the first two days, I was just thinking, what do I do? I need something to do. And then working with another coach, I was just talking with him. And one of the things I mentioned I've always thought about doing was, hey, let's just write a novel of one of the story ideas. Let's just write it down, even if it's not published. And that became a, well, what's stopping you, Patrick? And it was, okay, let's do that. And I decided, well, I really enjoyed my time overseas. I've worked with a lot of people who came back with very rough redeployment experiences. And I thought, Huh, let's explore ideas that can combine the two. And I started talking to groups of friends who I deployed out to Iraq and Afghanistan, just saying, this is the idea of the story I have. And maybe I'll just write it down and leave it alone. And oh my gosh, every everyone became invested in it. I was getting text messages like, hey, Patrick's writing a story about XYZ. And everybody wanted to be a part of it. Everybody wanted to a little bit of input on it. Everybody wanted to read little bits of the work in progress and it became uh, something even beyond my control. I had friends making artwork, music, and it was, okay, I, I actually owe it to these people to get this done. And just the whole experience, whole positive experience of having a bunch of people backing me up really encouraged me to go through all the processes of publishing and getting the story out there to be my first physical published story. <clears throat> so many authors will let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. Um, was there anything besides the, the time overseas that you mentioned that shaped you as a storyteller or was that the defining moment, do you think? That was a major moment of just the experiences everybody had who was with me or on another team, whether they were embedded with a foreign group, embedded with the local nationals, cut off from their own units. All that created various senses that you really don't get in most literature and in most stories. 
And the second thing that really inspired me was the experiences of two very good friends in particular who had extremely rough times redeploying, who, and they don't mind me telling you this, they had PTS, have PTSD from the experiences overseas and also redeploying and living back in civilian life. And one of the things that they told me was just kind of mind boggling for them was there's no story that really adequately captures their form of PTSD. We all know about the really bad shell shock, really bad flashbacks, but there was very few, very few people had the idea of that you could have a highly functioning individual who had PTSD that was crippling. And so in my mind, I started playing around with ideas of how can I combine both the story of deployment experiences of myself and others, as well as the PTSD stories from my friends. I'm not a psychologist. I couldn't add anything to the corpus of literature out there. So I thought fiction's probably the best way to do it. And from there was, well, I have some ideas for sci-fi stories and I can combine elements of the cultures we encountered overseas, especially Dari, which is a Persian Iranian culture and just kind of meld that together. And through all that, we got fallen. Okay. That's one way to do it. So you mentioned that you deployed overseas. So were you in the military? So no, I was deployed out as a Department of Defense civilian. Okay. So how do you think your time working directly with the military affects the stories you tell? With my time with the military in particular is the personal level. Everybody who's deployed out, everybody's in the military, everybody who's been Department of Defense, they've all experienced the giant bureaucracy that is government. Heck, many Americans know that. So that wasn't an area I really went down. It was the personal interactions, the both senses of family, friends, and community, but also the feeling of isolation that many people experience, even while surrounded by family, friends, and cohort that I really tried to capture and follow. Do you draw from the people you knew when you were in? So particularly, there's two people who influence the main character, Brendan. Additionally, several of the side characters, including two of the primary secondary characters, are more or less drawn from two people as well. That They're fictionalized. You're, if you met the real one, you'd go, well, there's differences there, but there's a lot of influence of, wow, that's really the friend or that's really the mentor. Okay. So does the time in working with the military, do you think it affects the way, like you've talked about, it, you'd use characters you knew in your experiences there. Does it affect the way you engage with content as a, like a reader, like you know, when you watch military movies or read books or et cetera, like does it change that experience for you? It does, it does. A lot of times in action movies, you get uh, the people who just put on full automatic and spray and pray. And I'm just thinking, oh, they're not gonna hit anything. Or the time when they just redirect fire, fighter jets all over the place, I'm thinking, oh, somebody's gonna have to sign off for all that fuel. It, it's, not, it's not so much I'm a curmudgeon, but I think almost as, I'd hate to say it almost as a bureaucrat of, oh, somebody's gonna have to pay for that. 
A good example is Amazon's Jack Ryan. There's a scene in the first season where Jack says, I can't go to Yemen. And another character says, get on the plane. And I'm just thinking, who's signing that paperwork? Who's approving that TDY? Who's approving the clearances being passed? And it's all just, oh. Yeah. Um, so let's transition a little bit. And I'm thinking that I agree with you. I, I have the same experience when people talk about military grade. I'm like, that just means it's the lowest quality crap built by the lowest, the highest bidder. <laughs> like, uh, I don't think that means what you think it means. So, so I feel you. Sometimes the, the, the red tapes where they mess it up for me, you get the vibe right. And then they just leave stuff on the battlefield. I'm like, Oh no, 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 no. You signed for that. You, you go pick that up. I don't care. Somebody if has to police that brass. <laughs> I actually, when we were deployed, we were being relieved by an air force unit. And so we were, you know, working with their supply while we were training their people uh, so we could go home. And I remember they made us uh, on the way back, not just turn in the magazines, but count out each individual bullet. So I don't know how the air force does it. So I can only speak. They made us do that. But in the army, once you chamber the round, you don't put it back. It's, it's dud. If you chamber the round and it goes in the barrel, you treat it like you already fired it because you don't want to, cause jams and stuff so you just you, you dispose of it and so when they started making us do that we're like i mean i could wait in line for hours to count that or we could go by the the clearing barrel and oh we test fired all seven <laughs> magazines oops no nothing to turn in you know like you're like you're one and done so i've seen the the war of the paper clips and it's it's almost as impressive as the battle of the bulge so yeah the that's something they never get right so, all right, well, let's transition from the from the writing side and talk about things from a fan angle. So have you got any cool fan art or had anybody cosplay your characters yet? So no cosplay characters, but I'm very grateful to have uh, several pieces of fan art. I put them online. I, uh, they're very good. They capture the characters well. And additionally, on via email uh, and Facebook, I've gotten some hand-drawn uh, fan art that I really appreciate. And it, it, it's really nice. I've never knew how nice it was as a creative to see somebody share their envisioning of your characters, but it's a very nice sensation. Absolutely. So have you spotted anybody out in public reading your books? There was one time I walked into work and a person in a different office was reading my book. And I at first was, oh, he's reading my book. Then I thought, oh no, he's gonna realize I'm a hack fraud. But you left a nice review on Goodreads, and so I don't feel totally bad. But it's a nervous sensation because you want to go, uh, oh, that's my book. I really hope you enjoy it. Then I, I just am afraid they're going to look back and go, this was yours. I wouldn't take too much credit for that, man. <laughs> All right. So finally, um, what is the weirdest or funniest interaction you've had since you started writing? Uh, so uh, on the topic of fan art and whatnot, one time on Twitter, unsolicited, a person just started copying, pasting, I assume from, from a Word document into a Twitter DM, their own version of fallen fan fiction erotica. And there was no preface to it. Uh, I thought at very first, oh, they're, they're sending me maybe an edit. They ca caught a typo or something. Then I realized, no, this is its own scene. And then it was, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. It was, like, it, it was uh, quite alarming because usually you'd think you'd 
fill a guy out to see, hey, are you open to receiving this or are you cool with this? Yeah, I, I'm very glad that person enjoyed the story, but uh, I was not expecting them to uh, take it to that realm. I mean, was it at least good? No. <laughs> a lot of adverbs. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Well, moving on, because we're a family-friendly show. So this is the point where we talk about everything you've written, uh, Patrick. So can you give us the Reader's Digest version? So uh, mostly nonfiction. I made my uh, first publication my thesis, which was Representations of Plains Indians Along the Oregon Trail. And you might think, wow, that's sort of unique and has nothing to do. But it, it deals with my love of culture and how different cultures interact and represent each other. I really played that into Fallen because Fallen involves a lot of cultural interaction, both the aliens and the humans. But the other thing I wrote that I'm actually going to revise is sort of a gothic horror that takes place during the Civil War that deals with tuberculosis vampires, which was a myth in rural Massachusetts, Rhode Island. And what if there was one haunting a plantation where Union soldiers are hanging out on South Carolina in 1863? Okay, you'll have to come back and talk about that one. Doc would love it. Um, so while that uh, all sounds fun, have you done any short stories? Because sometimes authors forget to count that in their their biography, if you would. Bibliography, I guess. Nothing that I've published. I have a bunch of short stories that uh, are basically works in progress that might remain works in progress. Some of them are just alternative histories, especially dealing with recent events such as the War on Terror. Other ones are more Civil War-based fictions. Uh, I mentioned the one, Hunger, that deals with the vampire, but there's other mythical elements that I'm exploring out. Nothing that's near finished, nothing I'm ready to share, but once I'm done with Fallen sequel, Risen, I might head back to it. Okay, well, before we uh, dive too deeply into this story, we're going to pause for a moment while we shamelessly show for the man. Humanity will be free, no matter the cost. Deep in the Guatemalan jungle, buried beneath a forgotten Mayan pyramid, an earth-shattering secret sits, waiting. Its discovery will rip apart the illusion that humanity is alone in the universe. Engaged in a life-and-death struggle for the future of mankind, Harry Rogers and Jess Cook are forced to protect this secret from the most despicable foes imaginable. They must race across the globe to complete Liberty Station, the first true interplanetary ship. Only then can they search for the shocking truth behind what they found. They have no room for error, because failure means death for them, and subjugation for everyone else. Presenting Liberty Station, Book One of Humanity Unlimited, written by Terry Nixon. Purchase your copy on Amazon and learn more about the author and his works at terrymixon.com. All right. So that sounds uh, fascinating. Thank you, Terry, for being the sponsor. Um, it's a good book. I've read it. Um, but while the books that you've written sound fascinating, clearly, uh, since this is your first novel, it's what we're here to talk about. 
So how did you come up with the premise for this? Where did you get the idea? You mentioned it a little bit, but could you expand on the origin story for this uh, for this book in this universe? Was it uh, psychedelics, Ouija board, uh, expired MREs? So there was no food poisoning, no consulting of demons, and no heavy drug use that came up with the idea. Really what I kind of like to do, I war game things in my head, and a lot of times it's uh, that wouldn't work. Well, one thing that really worked in my head was, hey, let's have the military angle, let's have the veteran angle of redeployment, and let's have aliens. But it was thinking in my mind, how does that actually work? Uh, I tried some first contact ideas and I decided I really don't do justice to just the chaos of a first contact event. So when I was exploring the idea, I decided, well, let's focus on what it was like for me to go deploy to Iraq about six years after the invasion happened and Afghanistan about nine years after the invasion happened. What was it like to go into a setting where the conflict's ongoing, the infrastructure's there, the initial cultural shock is gone, but there's still a lot of cultural miscommunication, conflicts, and initial interactions going on. So what I decided to do, I had a, came up with an idea. What if the aliens came to Earth? Five years have gone by. Earth has changed somewhat, and somewhat it has stayed the same. And what would it like to just kind of drop into that situation where nobody freaks out of, oh my gosh, there's aliens, but everybody has to deal with the situation of, there's aliens now. How do we interact with them? How do we accept the gifts that are given to us? How do people who work with the aliens just live their daily lives? Fascinating concepts, all of them. Um, so before we dive in too deep, we're going to take a moment where I'm going to share the cover. And you can tell us uh, what made you pick this as the cover. It is definitely... Um, not stereotypical of what I would expect for the first contact genre. There is no spaceship ass. Um, so so what made you decide to, to go for this for your cover? So the best thing I can say about the cover is actually consulting somebody who is a graphic artist and has the ability to think of art. When it comes to the visual arts, I have the skill of basically a chimpanzee. Problem is, if a chimpanzee made my level of art, people would be impressed, while with me, they're just disappointed. So working, <laughs> with, working with a friend, he decided, well, the main character is military, a veteran, so let's play up that military angle. It, he's the center, he's the focus, so he's up front in your face. However, behind him is the character Esper's uh, representation of the aliens known as Sabia. And he said, let's have her behind him. So there's this pressure of the aliens, this pressure of green unknown right behind him. You don't really know friend, foe, indifferent. You see a bit of them, but her face is covered, which means part of the aliens agenda, part of their goals, all that is not fully known. So you have a good idea of what the aliens are, but you don't fully understand what the aliens are. I didn't realize she was supposed to be an alien. I thought maybe she was a Dependa. <laughs> okay. So what would your 30-second elevator pitch be for this novel? My 30-second elevator pitch, let's see if you can time me. So a veteran is assigned to be a liaison to an alien race visiting Earth. 
He suffers from PTSD. He's functional. Many people don't understand what that fully means. So it's, uh, he just needs a little tender love and care and he's fine. Meanwhile, he himself can't even really come to peace with that. The alien's agenda is a mystery. It's unknown. He's sent to kind of fill them out, find out. He's embedded with them. He learns to befriend them, but obviously it's not an equal relationship. And the stress of both the government demands, the alien's pressure on him, his own PTSD, an event that happens fairly early on in the book, all are culminating to a forefront of, hey, events on Earth are becoming more intense, his situation's getting more intense, and can he preserve the peace while balancing all the sides and trying to keep his own sanity? Okay. Sanity's overrated, I'm told. But uh, what do you think makes your well i guess in this case it's a book at the moment that will be a series but what do you think makes it special so uh everybody everything's special in their creator's eyes and so to me it's really special and i hope other people think it's special as well it's a military sci-fi that doesn't really have military action in it and i'm not knocking th great things like starship troopers or warhammer 40k but I try to get a more realistic, hey, what is it like for a person in these situations? What is it like to struggle in these situations? What is it like to live their daily lives in these situations? And so I hope, I know it deals with aliens and the person living with aliens, but I hope it's more realistic in that sense. Okay. Realism can be fun, uh, especially when you know when you talk about aliens. And we'll come back to how you made those aliens uh, later in the interview. But do you have any specific tropes that you feel like Fallen used and hit the best? So the trope I think a lot of people have told me it hit the best is man versus self. And obviously the aliens and their agenda play a very important role in the book, move the plot along. But the main conflict is the person versus himself. And it's a unique situation, but I really felt, and others who really appreciated my book, and thank you for editing the book, Dan, this is a shout out to you, thought I really captured that well. And so of all the tropes, man versus self. Okay. That um, is not what you expected from this genre. So I think that sets it apart a little bit as well. Speaking of genres, um, other than first contact, um, what subcategory or subgenres do you feel like this novel is uh, is best sort of categorized in? So psychological would be a very good subcategory. I'm not going to claim it's another Solaris, but it, obviously, as I've talked about before, it deals with a person's battle with PTSD, and in that, it falls into a unique subcategory of military sci-fi, where it's military setting military rules, things like that, but it's not military combat sci-fi. Okay. So let's talk about the story itself then. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your main character? Well, it sounds like there's two main characters. So so can you tell us about both of them and what makes them special and unique in the, uh, in the crowded field of sci-fi and fantasy? So most of the book is told from the perspective of Brendan Sean Murphy, who's always felt a little sort of disconnected from the world. He grew up in a troubled family. He's the son of immigrants from Ireland. He 
with the rough family. He tried going into seminary, washed out of that. He went into the military, really found himself there, made his identity the military, but an incident dealing with a suicide bombing shattered that as well. Uh, his marriage fell apart, fell apart when he was away, and he was at the start of the book just getting by day by day. He's able to compartmentalize a little bit to put on a brave face at work, but as he tells his boss in the first chapter, his current job, he's dying in. He wants to go back out onto the field, but there's just no more opportunities anymore. In the, at the end of the first chapter, he interferes in a terrorist attack and his, he's wounded in it, but he's saved by the aliens. The government realizes, wow, we, we just had a military guy get, save some aliens, that's some good graces. Let's see if we can embed him as part of our team with the aliens because they'll appreciate him. And he's set in as a liaison to just deal with the aliens, try to fill them out. Meanwhile, the aliens have their own agenda for him because they sort of treat him as a spy, but also a curiosity. And it's, oh, wow, there's a human living with us. Let, let's see what it's like on his planet. And that was inspired by a lot of people who I knew who were embedded in two foreign units, where initially there's a combination of curiosity and also don't talk to them too much because they're writing a report about everything they hear and do. The second main character, really the primary secondary character, she, is Espers. She's a Sabia doctor, the Sabia being the aliens. She's on the mission. She's one of the main doctors, and she's the one who saves Brendan's life. At first, she, like all the other Sabia, treat him as a curiosity, but uh, as they get to know each other more, they figure out, oh, so this is what you're looking for. This is your agenda. Uh, there's more missions that they're involved in, and they feel like each other out more, and they also find out where their differences are. And that's uh, kind of the introduction without spoiling anything plot. Do you describe what the aliens look like? So the aliens look like humans, olive skin. They're influenced heavily by Persian background. They're influenced heavily by Persian culture. I pulled a lot of Dari and Farsi and Parsi names. Uh, that's one of the things that comes up in the book where people are wondering, why do they look so human if they're aliens? Where did they learn to speak English? Brendan gets multiple different answers at first, and it's part of the mystery he's going to try to unravel. Does it involve Stargates? Just ask. No Stargates. <laughs> okay. So were there any specific um, memorable secondary characters aside from S SB, um, butchering that name? Espers. Espers, um, you said, you know, she was sort of quasi sort of skating the line between primary and secondary characters. Were there other secondary characters that were memorable? The other memorable secondary character is a Brina. She's the pilot. She is the one who's really assigned to Brendan, uh, a really good foreign deployment friend. I used a lot to inspire the character of Brina. And there's a lot of good banter back and forth, filling each other out back and forth. And also when Brendan is, hits a low point, she's the one there to not only cheer him up, but be with him and help him out. And so she's a really good friend. 
and it's a complete platonic relationship, but I think it did a good job to the deployment friends that are out there in the world. Okay. Um, so definitely not a romance novel. <laughs> there's, there's elements of romance. It's not a romance novel. It's definitely not the ones you see on, online that have the six pack alien and the green woman. All right. All right. So do you have any bad guys without spoilers, obviously that the, uh, the characters have to overcome or is it more the bad guy is themselves in nature? And so in the book, sort of the political divide in the world in America has been heightened and that has led to elements of chaos, elements of violent groups rising up. So there's not one character that you go, oh, that's the bad guy, but there are bad people out there. And sort of the climax battle involves a situation where an alien is captured by the group and both the government, the aliens are feuding over, well, how exactly did this happen? Who has responsibility for this? How do we disengage this? How do we try and not have everybody die over this? Okay. So do we get to see the alien homeworld as well? Not in this book, no. Okay. So speaking of characters, if yours met you in a back alley and they knew you were the author of their torment, uh, how do you see that interaction playing out? Well, I hope Brendan realizes life does get better and is grateful for that. I could imagine Barina being sort of the person loving being deployed to a foreign planet would find it a unique experience. And I could see Esfers being annoyed at being away from her home and maybe maybe giving me a few choice words. I don't think I would be beaten up by any of the main primary or secondary characters. It'd be, I could see some of the tetrary characters having some beef with me though. Okay, all right. So finally, what can you tell us about the universe where this story takes place? Is it near future? Is it like um, far in the future? Like, What can you tell us about the world where the story takes place? So what I would say is imagine tomorrow aliens just pop up and say, hi, then fast forward it five years of minor trade with the aliens, minor interaction with the aliens, things like that. It's a very near future that aliens have visited with the initial shock of first contact being over. So what made you decide not to start with first contact? So I tried initially in some of the very early drafts doing a first contact, whether it led off the story or in a flashback. And I realized I just could not do it justice. One thing that came to mind with what would the shock be, it'd be something similar to 9-11. But just trying to think things through, trying to word it properly and paint a good picture, I realized I'm not doing it justice and I'm not writing to the quality that the rest of the book is. And I decided, let's just have a line that throws back, oh yeah, wasn't it crazy when the aliens came and everybody goes, yeah, and they move on. All right, so was the first contact in this universe like violent or was it just, oh my God, aliens landed on the lawn? More like, oh my God, aliens are saying hi and they're about to land and they're waving. And we go, wow, this kind of opens up unique markets, opportunities and events 
what do they want? So do you cover how things like religious institutions and the like would respond to this? Because I can imagine this would be a culture shock. So religion plays um sort of, it's, religion plays a role in the book. So I don't necessarily talk about, well, what the, is the bishop's conference going to say about this? But with Brendan being a lapsed Catholic, with the Sabia having their own religion, and various other people, not all of them being religious, it's, hey, how, what is the universe like? What does this mean? Are we just going to disregard each other's faith completely? Do we kind of put our face in a box? Do we recognize them as having a faith? Where, how do we agree on elements where our faith are similar? So it's not a major part of the story, but it does play a role. Okay, and what made you decide to make them look so human? It plays into both the name Fallen and also sort of a reveal towards the late bit of the book. But I thought with them being human, especially when I was first thinking out of the book, that opens up so many opportunities because uh, I'm thinking of the Arrival movie and possibly aliens are very odd looking creatures if they're real. I couldn't play with that. I, I could only think of one or two storylines and really couldn't flesh it out. But what would it be if aliens who looked human and talked English showed up Oh, that opens up so many questions and possibilities to play within a speculative fiction genre. And I decided to go down that angle. Okay. Uh, finally, this book is clearly part of a series. I know because you told me in the pre-show, but uh, what do you expect uh, from the series? You mentioned that you're working on book two or, or it's close to being done, but is that the end of their story? So I recently just got done talking to a friend because we would sort of war game it out, uh, role play out various scenes. And they said, well, what's next? And I brought up how Fallen and its sequel, Risen, really are Brendan's cycle. With that, his story is done. However, one of the nice things is I really enjoy the world building. I've laid down a lot of foundation. And depending on once Risen's put to bed with the editor and everything, I can decide, do I want to go back towards the short story route and flesh some of those ideas out? Or would I want to do a spin-off from the Fallen series that's independent of Brendan and Esfers? And that just leads so many opportunities of, do you look at more of a macro scale political angle? Do you talk about some of the other sub-characters and their own adventures? Time will tell. Okay. So we know that every literary universe, at least the good ones, have their own internally consistent rules of science, technology, and or magic. So what sort of tech can we expect from these aliens? Clearly, if it's near future, we know what to expect from the humans. But what do we see from the aliens? So with the aliens, they have very fast travel. They have faster than light travel that they use in space. Brendan's remarked how they've taken about 10 minutes to go from their space station on the other side of the moon to Earth. So that's incredibly fast travel. Uh, additionally, where it really comes into play in the story, they have advanced medical technology that can repair limbs, repair organs. If you get a wounded person to them fast enough, they basically can put anybody back together again. Okay. So of all the tech that you invented for their for this universe, what would you want for your daily um, daily use? 
If I could have the travel, that would be very nice. Just cut down the commute to a few seconds. I would not complain at all. So how would you abuse that tech, though? Because, you know, it's, <laughs> it's all wholesome to get to work on time, but. Uh, I, so I, I probably would use leave a lot more for tr fun travel and to the extent I might have to use sick leave to do, do extra travel days of, oh, I can't come into the office today, quickly take my photo, show everybody I'm sick, then hop on and end up in the <laughs> week. Nice, nice. Um, so you clearly have aliens in this universe. Uh, in this one, you made them human-like. So, But you know, at some point in time, you might write aliens or fantastical creatures that, that aren't basically humans. So how do you think you'll go about creating those those creatures? Will you let nature inspire you, your dreams, your nightmares, legends and folklore? Like, how would you see yourself as a creator doing that? So uh, in my life, I've learned when I hit a hard problem, one of the solutions is get a lot of people who are smarter than me. And so I imagine I'd grab a few of my friends who are biologists, a few of my friends who are fantasy writers, and just be, okay, guys, let's think about a creature or two what would it be like? Heck, let's start with a starfish. Where does that take us? And just let them talk, write down notes, and then use the science of friends just mashing things together to create brand new species. Okay. So uh, this interview is clearly winding down, but before we let you go, Patrick, was there anything we didn't ask you about this, this book, Fallen, that you want to tell us? So I mentioned it very briefly, but I took great fun in pulling from greater Iranian culture, creating the aliens, elements of Zoroastrianism, elements of Manichaeism, elements of just Persian folklore and cultural events to create their holidays and whatnot. And it was just fun because everybody knows Greek mythology. A good chunk of the Western population knows Celtic and Norse mythology. But just reaching in Persia, which has its own rich wealth that few people in the West know about, that's a garden for new and original ideas. So when you used the Persians, did you make their military the, the immortals? No, uh, 300 did that well, and I know I can't top that. Uh, come on, you don't want Xerxes? <laughs> <laughs> Having so, him as the alien emperor would be neat. It would be out of place, though. Uh, I was... You know, as a history major, I study all the dead people, and they they had some cool stuff going on. So, all right. So, is this available in um, like what format? Is it just ebook, or do you have it uh, hardback, paperback, audiobook, maybe? So, as right now is available on paperback and ebook. It's on Kindle Unlimited as well. And a few friends, including my brother, are pushing me really hard to get it on audiobook. I had a friend read the first page, which is on my YouTube page, and also on my main website. So it might be coming out on audiobook somewhat soon. Okay. So before I forget, um, we like to ask, because we have families that listen to this show, what age range would you consider appropriate to read this, this novel? So I would say adults. And the reason why I say that is it deals with, it takes people's real life PTSD issues. Those are heavy issues. It, it, remorse about combat, families falling apart. It's not overly graphic with violence or anything like that. 
it's not sexually explicit or anything like that, but these are real serious issues. If, if you have a 16 or 17 year old who could handle people talking about PTSD, it might be open to them, but any younger I'd strongly recommend against. All right, that's fair. Um, what are the odds of you doing the actual reading for the audiobook? <laughs> People deserve to hear a better voice than mine, so probably. <laughs> okay, okay. So uh, before we let you go, uh, dear listener, we like to remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platform. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. And uh, shortly after this interview, you're going to hear our fireside chat on why book reviews matter. So, so stay tuned for that. Um, but yeah, do your part, people. It, it's really helpful. And it's really helpful to your fellow readers as well. But uh, Patrick, as we wrap this up, can you tell listeners how they can find you? And as usual, so, it'll be in the show notes. So the easiest way would be Patrick Abbott, A-B-B-O-T-T, Alpha Bravo Bravo, Oscar Tango Tango dot net. Uh, there I have links to Twitter that I'm especially active on, as well as Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And from the main page, uh, I also have links that will take you to Amazon, where you can buy Fallen. Okay, and you can find us, dear listener, on our Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen over at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. We do have a Facebook page. So far, we don't have enough people following it for you to be able to get a direct link. But when you do follow it, we will share that dedicated URL. And if you're a guessing man, you can bet on it being Blasters and Blades podcast. Uh, we have a website, anchor.fm backslash blasters, tack and tack blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades, where you can also support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on. Um, or you can support the show more directly over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. And uh, be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink until their liver explodes. And I just trying to make us not seem like booze heads. So, yeah, we won't do liquor this week. But uh, in the meantime, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For the aforementioned Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. All right. Thank you for stopping by, Patrick. Thank you for having me. All right. And as a, as a wrap-up, I forgot to ask, but I mean, it's too late to boot you off for it. So there is, I guess, no wrong answer. Pineapple on pizza, yay or nay? Yay. All right. I would have booted you. It's a good thing I forgot to ask. <laughs>